Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Matthew chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. Or verses 17 through 18, it's chapter 2. We're looking at some of the statements in the Gospels that are quoted from the Old Testament. Now, I've entitled the series, Believing in Christmas is Still Okay. And I've shared with you before that at this time of year, there's a lot of fantasy, mythology, and the songs that we listen to on the radio or uh, the stories that we read. And sometimes for little children, that gets blended with the truth. And so for Jesus to be born um, and angels appearing from heaven and wise men coming from the east, uh, it seems to be on the same footing. Uh, they're just stories like Santa Claus. Now, we did hear a little humor on Friday night. Um, do you know how much it costs for Santa to park his sleigh? Nothing. It's on the house. <laughs> there you go. So, Santa, you know, the, the myth of St. Nicholas and, and all of these things. And so as people begin to grow older, uh, you know, we put away childish things. We put away the fact that there is no Santa. Sorry if I just destroyed your hope. All right. I, I know in the school, uh, it, it's always walking on pins and needles because there's always some kid who has become enlightened that feels he has to share with his classmates, there is no Santa, you know, and uh, he destroys it for the rest of them. Um, but so many people in secular society look at the Bible and they say, there is no God. There is no Jesus Christ. It's all fantasy. It's all mythology. This morning in Sunday school, we looked at the five witnesses that God sent to show us that Jesus is the human Savior. Uh, first of all, he sent wise men and shepherds. And then today's lessons, he sent Mary and Joseph to the temple to present him to the Lord. They were righteous parents. And then they met devout Simeon. Um, and then they also met Anna. And so there's five witnesses that tell us that Jesus Christ was born, that he is the savior of humanity, that he was a light for the Gentiles. So it's okay for us to still believe in the Christ of Christmas. And so today in Matthew chapter 2, our main verse is uh, verses 17 and 18, but we're going to continue the, the big idea that we want to learn from the Christmas season. It takes faith to please God. Do you believe in the Christ of Christmas? And so this is our scripture verses today, Matthew chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Uh, then was fulfilled what was spoken uh, by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, a voice uh, weeping and loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Historically, this is known as the murder of the innocents. And liberal historians doubt that this ever took place because it's not recorded in secular history books. Let me just put this out there. Whatever do liberal historians or liberal theologians believe anyway? 
Why do we, you know, why do we listen to them on the History Channel, all right, and put any credibility in what they say when they don't even believe in God in the first place? All they're trying to do is to destroy faith. And so, I mean, we have to understand Bethlehem was a little city. It was not a major metropolitan area where there were 5,000 or even 2,000 children that were put to death. Bethlehem was a small little village. May have been five or six children. But isn't the life of one child precious anyway? And so I think God, even though they were few in number, God recorded them in the scripture. And so there is sadness uh, in the Christmas story because of the evil sin of wicked King Herod. Now, some people say, well, you know, that, that, that's just the story. Well, if Herod could kill his own son because he felt that he was a rival, I wouldn't put it past Herod that he would kill others, right, if he could kill his own son. So today we're going to go through this, and this is coming from what book of the Bible? Well, Matthew, uh-oh, let's see here. Is that, is that my phone ringing, or is that someone else? What, what that is is that's someone's uh, ring bell going off saying that there's someone at home. So that came from out there. Mine's up here, and so mine's on silent. So if you could silence that, and uh, that would be helpful. Now, this is coming from Jeremiah the prophet, the book of Jeremiah, but it's also recorded to us in Matthew chapter 2 as a fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, when you go back and you look at the setting in the book of Jeremiah, which we will in just a minute, there are some parallels to what's going on in the book of Matthew, and those parallels, they carry forward into our day. So that's how we're going to treat these uh, is that they're parallel. Some people call that double fulfillment. But historically speaking, the reason why these are included in the New Testament is because they're logical. They make sense. They're, they're real human events. And what was taking place in the days of Jeremiah uh, was very similar to what was taking place in the days of the Lord's birth and in our days as well. And so as we go through this here, um, you're going to find in this series how God says there's remarkable fulfillment in these Old Testament prophets that point us towards Christ. And so let's take our Bibles for just a moment and uh, let's go back to the book of Jeremiah to give you a time to find that. Jeremiah chapter 31. And I set my glasses down, so if I have a hard time reading, please understand that's what's going on, is I don't have my spectacles to see very well. All right, in Jeremiah chapter 31, we typically think of this as the chapter that includes the new covenant, how God is going to give Israel a new heart as a nation where they will then have the law of God not written on tablets of stone, but on their heart. Before you get to that wonderful prophecy, you go through some great grief. And Jeremiah, 
uh, he has an epitaph as a prophet. What kind of prophet was he known as? The weeping prophet. Why was he weeping? Well, he was weeping because the people of Israel were living in sin. And God had prophesied through Jeremiah that he was going to send foreign nations to attack them and to conquer them and to deport them, to carry them away to a foreign land. And through that event, then their hearts would be purified. They would get right with God. Once right with God, he would send them back to their land. So that's the, the setting that we have here in Jeremiah. Um, look at verse 9. They shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim uh, is my firstborn. So Israel and Ephraim, the, the divided kingdom, is saying this is what's going to happen, but it's going to happen through weeping. All right. Um, let's keep reading. Let's go down to the chapter here. Verse 22, how long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth, a woman shall uh, compass a man. All right, that's very vague, to be honest with you, we're not exactly sure uh, what that means, all right? Um, what do we have here? Oh, my glasses, thank you. Ah, okay, someone wants me to be able to read, so thank you very much, appreciate that. So we're really not sure what that last phrase in verse 22 means, but we are very certain of what the first phrase in verse 22 means. O thou backsliding daughter. Israel was a backsliding people. They were going away from their God. Verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities, when I shall bring again their what? Their captivity. So he sent them into captivity. The Lord bless thee, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. But they're in captivity. All right. Um, verse 19. Let's go back there. Surely after I was turned away, I repented. And after I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. So when they're in captivity, they realize their sins. They realize what they've done. And so they repent and they come back. So you're going to see today the parallels in Matthew and in Jeremiah. Uh, the fact that sin leads to exile. Exile leads to weeping. Weeping leads to repentance. Repentance leads to restoration. All right? So the first point here is this, is that Judah went into uh, exile in Babylon for their sin. And that's the story in Jeremiah chapter 31, that they went into captivity because of their sin. Now, if you'll go over to the book of Matthew and keep a ribbon here, and we'll see some, some parallels to what is taking place here. Actually, it's Matthew chapter 2, verses uh, 
17 and following, and I'm in Matthew 27, so wonder, wonder why it doesn't look right. Thank you, I really needed my glasses if I was that far off. All right, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, the flight into Egypt. And then where they were departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And that's a quotation from Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. So Jesus has no sin, so he's not being punished to go into exile. Rather, he's going into exile in the land of Egypt for his safety. But nonetheless, Jesus is a representative of his people. So he's living out the experiences of what the Jews had to go through. And so he's in exile, but not for his sin, but for his own safety. And so here we see that it is that uh, reference to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt have I called my son. Well, that is in reference to Jesus representing the whole nation of Israel. And so he went into safety not for his own sin, because he had no sin, but rather as a figure representing the nation. Now, go back with me to verse 8 in chapter 2 of Matthew. And he sent them, this is King Herod, being referenced in verse 7. He privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star had appeared, and then he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. Do you think that Herod really wanted to worship the child? Probably not. Okay. When the news was announced, Herod and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. So why is Jesus going into exile? Well, not for his own sin, but there is sin involved here. And the greatest sin may not be the murder of the innocents, but rather the hypocrisy of pretending that you want to worship God. You see, that's what was going on in the Old Testament. Yes, we're God's people. We have the temple. We have the sacrifices. We have times of prayer. We have the offerings, and it's just all going through the motions. Do you ever find yourself as a Christian just going through the motions? I love God. I go to church, give my offerings. I invite people to church, but yet your heart is far from God. Well, maybe today through the Christmas story you'll address that in your life. But Jesus is going into exile for the sin of Herod and for the sin of Israel. 
Now, if we go back up into the story, go back to verses 1 and 2, it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews, for has seen a star in the east and have come to worship him? And when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered who together in verse 4? Say it out loud. Chief priests and scribes of the people. Aren't these the religious leaders? He asked them, where is the, the Christ child? Where is the Messiah? Where is the king of the Jews supposed to be born? What did they do? They went right to the Old Testament. And they said, oh, well, that's easy to answer. Um, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. They were able to go to the book of Micah, chapter 5, and verse 2. You see, they understood that the Christ was going to be a real person, not just some myth mythology or some fantasy that was made up. They knew that he was going to be real, and they had indicators of where he was to be born. But do you think that their hearts were right with God? When they found out that news, why were they not the ones to go to Bethlehem and worship? Why were they not the ones who were excited? Just because we read the Bible doesn't mean our heart is right with God. The history of the church is filled with pastors who could preach eloquent messages but were not regenerate people. There's a lot of unregenerate people in the pulpit in America today, and that's the problem. They've never experienced new birth themselves. And so don't think that just because you read the Bible as a Christian that you're okay with God. Because Herod had the wise men, and uh, not the wise men, but the scribes and... and um, the chief priests gathered together to tell him where Christ was to born. So once again, I think there's implied in the text the hypocrisy of the spiritual leaders in that day. Because if they could find out from the Bible where the Christ was to be born, why didn't they go to worship him? And so once again, for his own safety, God sends his son into exile. Now, the third point in here is that our own sin leads us into spiritual bondage. Let's go over to Proverbs chapter 5 and look at verse 22. Verse 21, Proverbs 5, 21, For the ways of, of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be held or bound with the cords of his sin. That's the deceitfulness of sin. Yeah, sin brings momentary pleasure. And that's what seems to be so captivating to us. If you'll partake of the forbidden fruit, you will become wise or become like God. Your eyes see. Your pride begins to desire. 
when the lust of the flesh begins to want. But behind that temptation then is this huge, heavy chain of bondage. If any of you are uh, listeners to Patch the Pirate, you probably have listened to Kidnapped on Island, where the main character is chained in his own sins, his own pride. But every human being is bound in their sin and needs to be set free by Christ. Sin always leads us captive. Today, uh, we don't call things sin anymore. We call them addictions. We, we call them different disorders. And we continue to live in that bondage because we really will not identify what the primary issue is. Sin in our life. If we would identify it for what it is, we could be set free. But even as God's people, we get bound in our own sin. And we're held captive. And it seems to take over and control our life. And so verse 23, he shall die without instruction and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. This simply means this. Everyone has turned to his own way. In other words, folks, we're going to do what we want to do. It doesn't matter if you hear conviction preached from the word of God from the pulpit because you're just going to do what you want to do. And that's precisely why we need to get our heart right with God. Because we're living in the way of our own air. We're, we're going to die without the instruction. You need to hear preaching. Folks, you, you need to be in the house of God. You need to hear the word of God because it confronts and it corrects our heart. Isn't that what Christmas is really all about? It's a message that we're a bunch of sinners who need a Savior. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. It's a reminder that we're all sinners and that we need a Savior. We need deliverance. We need spiritual freedom. So the first point there uh, was this, the, the first parallel. Was it in the Old Testament, they did what they wanted to do. They would not yield to the prophets that were given to them. Jeremiah, as the prophet of God, he was weeping, he was broken, because he knew where that was going to go. And they went into captivity, and he wept for them. He was brokenhearted. And so sin leads to captivity. It leads to exile. And so Jesus, though he did not sin, those around him, Herod and the chief priests and the scribes, they were the ones that were sinning, and it was so dangerous that God had to send his son to Egypt for safety. And then we have the same parallel in our day and age, is that sin leads us into captivity, spiritual captivity. All right, now our next point here is this. Exile leads to weeping. So what happened in the book of Jeremiah was when the mothers saw their children being gathered together uh, in Ephrata, which is about three miles north. So there must have been some kind of a military uh, staging post where they were taking the people as they rounded them up from the city of Jerusalem, about three miles north, uh, just outside of the city, and from there organizing them into traveling groups that would go into the land of Babylon into captivity. And the mothers were getting news that your children were being carried away three miles outside of town 
being uh, all chained up and ready to ship out to Babylon to be in captives. And so the mothers tried to go there, and the mothers were coming together and weeping in mass. Just a bunch of crying women realizing that their children were going into captivity and they would see them no more. There was nothing that they could do to comfort themselves because the foreign oppressor had conquered them. All they could do was weep. And so the Judean mothers wept for their exiled children. Now what happens here in Matthew is that Herod, under the guise of, well, go and find him. When you found him, then come back to me. Tell me where he is because I want to worship him. Really what he's saying is, find out where he's at, tell me, and I'll go murder him. I don't need a rival to my throne. By the way, you know Herod was not a Jew. He was an Idumean. Uh, Idumean is a, a desert Arabian Peninsula people. And uh, Herod was the son of Antipater, who had worked with Rome uh, so that Rome could control the land of Israel. And Rome assigned the name Palestine to Israel. So if you see the Holy Land through Jewish eyes, you never refer to it as the land of Palestine. Why? Because that's the name that the oppressors gave to it. Okay, it's the promised land, it's the land of Israel. And so Jews don't refer to it as Palestine, they refer to it as Israel. But nonetheless, uh, Herod being an Idumean, working with the Romans, he uh, subjugated the people and uh, then was ruling over them. Where was the complacency then of the Jewish people to allow this foreigner to claim the title of their king? Just a century before, as we went through the book of Daniel, um, we saw the great struggle that they went through to become independent. They threw off the bondage of the Greeks, and that's where the story of Hanukkah comes from. They finally threw off the Greeks. They wanted to purify and cleanse the temple, so they went to dedicate it. To dedicate it, they needed to light the, the menorah uh, inside the temple, the candlestick. And they only had oil for one day, and it miraculously burned for a week. And that's why Hanukkah goes on for a week. And it's very interesting. Jesus, as a Jew, celebrated Hanukkah. Now, whether they called it Hanukkah back then, I'm not, I'm not sure. But he took that and he said, I am the light of the world. There's a little rabbit trail there. But here's this foreigner claiming to be king of the Jews. So if you're Jewish, at this time, many devout Jews were actually looking for their Messiah. Hence, Simeon and Anna and many others, uh, such as the Lord's disciples. But exile leads to weeping. The Judean mothers wept for their exiled children, and then the mothers of Bethlehem wept for their dead children because Herod had no intent to actually worship the Christ child. And when he found out that the wise men had tricked him, he became enraged, and so he knew that the star had appeared maybe two years before. So in his best educated guess, he says, well, if I go to this little town... There cannot be that many babies of that age 
I'll just wipe all of the children, boy children out that are two years of age and younger. And so I'll get rid, even though I don't know who he is, I'll just get rid of my political rivals. And so that was Herod's scheme. And so he actually did that. How many? We don't know. But every baby is precious. And so then the mothers in Bethlehem wept for their children because they were no more. They wept for their dead children. Now, let's go and look at James chapter 4. And this is the parallel for our day and age. James chapter 4. In my past ministry, I led, participated in an addiction recovery program called Reformers Unanimous. And um, we had a, a book in the bookstore that the addicted could buy. And the title of the book is, Why is Everyone Crying? Why is everyone crying? Crying happens a lot in the life and the homes of the addicted. They're not happy. Their family cries, and they hurt their family, then they're hurt, and then they cry, and there's just tears and weeping everywhere because of the bondage of sin and addiction in their lives. Well, this is no surprise uh, that when we allow sin to go unchecked in our lives, that we too will weep. James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, you know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Folks, we love the world. We love the things that are in the world. God comes to us in the little letter, general letter of 1 John, and he says, Stop loving the world, for all that is in the world is not of the Father. And so spiritually speaking, we commit adultery, or you're an adulteress, against God in your heart when you're in love with the world. Somehow, we have created this consumerism in church, where church is supposed to be about the experience that comes to us and that it gives us a good emotional feeling for having been there. Oh, wow, that was, you know, really felt like we were moving today. And just all man-centered approach. Well, I just share with you what, what that is, is that's even the church bringing in the world to appeal to the flesh that's what it is. And so we're spiritually adulterers. Whoop, there were glasses breaking. All right, so verse 5, Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? So the Holy Spirit is at war. And when you're not listening to the Holy Spirit of God, you get a conflicted conscience. You're not at peace. You're unsettled. And it leads to all of that strife. 
Now, verse 6, but he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We have to humble ourselves before God. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Are we resisting the devil or are we running with the devil? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to what? Warning. And your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. This was nothing new. In the letter to the church at Corinth, the Corinthian believers were actually pretty excited because they were getting some, some press and some notoriety in their town. They had a young man who was illicitly involved in a relationship with his stepmother. And that was spreading like wildfire gossip throughout the city of Corinth. And this is what the unsaved thought of the church in Corinth. Does that sound any different than what we're living in our country today? When famous televangelists, pastors, pastors all over the nation end up committing moral failure? Hey, listen, by the grace of God, I haven't, and by the grace of God, I won't, but please keep praying for me, amen? But look, folks, this is the way that the world looks at the church today. Well, maybe we brought part of that on ourselves because we're not listening to the Spirit of God. And um, our attitude is not one of weeping and of mourning, verse 9, but one rather of pride. And this is what Paul told the, the church in Corinth. You're, you're rejoicing in iniquity. You're boasting about sin. You rather ought to be afflicted and mourn. You ought to be weeping. But instead, we just enjoy our sin too much. We laugh at the sitcoms that are filled with immorality. And we put that in front of ourselves as our mental and visual diet. We've got to be very careful that we're not in love with the world, that we're not rejoicing in sin, because we will weep. And we will say, how foolish was I? that I didn't listen. I am where I am today because I would not listen. I would not have the right attitude. I wouldn't weep over sin. But now here's the good news. When we do weep over sin, then the third point here is this, that weeping or godly sorrow does lead to repentance. And so today, if God is leading you into bondage, maybe there's a message there for you to be paying attention to. Maybe that your heart needs to be molded and changed and broken, weeping over sin. Now, I don't recommend this, and I've shared this story with you before. Um, maybe not the best of parenting techniques, but my oldest sister, uh, by the way, she loves the Lord. She's a pastor's wife in Tennessee. She served the Lord as a missionary for 26 years in Spain. But evidently, she was a pretty rebellious teenager. And my mom got so exasperated with her one day when she was being defiant and rebellious that my mom actually tackled her, had her face down on the ground, she was sitting on her back, and she was just paddling her butt, all right? You're going to listen to me, you're going to obey me. And uh, that's a story that gets told in the Snow household, all right? 
And, uh, but then, evidently, there was some communication from the backside to the brain and the heart, because it got through that day. And uh, so her rebellious spirit was broken, you know. And that, not her spirit, but her rebellious will was broken. So weeping leads to repentance. So let's go to Psalm chapter 30. And Psalm chapter 30 is a praise for deliverance, okay? Um, the people had gone away into captivity, verse 5, it says, For his anger endureth but for a moment, but in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. So look, have some hope. And that's definitely what People in spiritual bondage or addictions, they need. They need hope. Your life is not meant to be lived as a life of weeping. It is meant to be lived with a life of joy. Weeping may endure for night, but joy comes in the morning. And he will give you joy if you will yield to him. Now let's go over to the 137th chapter in Psalm. And look historically at what happened to the Jews. Psalm 137, verses 1 and 2. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted of us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Then verse 4, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Think of that. The, the music in the land of Israel, it brought glory to God. The songs were about their God. Now here they are, captives in a foreign land, weeping, brokenhearted, and their oppressors say, we want you to sing a song that will make us, you know, do a little jig and a little dance. We want to hear one of your happy songs, all right? And they're like, we can't do that. We can't do that. And they're brokenhearted, and their weeping is there. And then all of a sudden it causes this longingness to go back home. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. It means let me forget how to play. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. What's going on here is there's some introspection. There's some evaluation taking place. We're not where we should be. We want to get back to that place? What do we need to do to get back there? 
What did the Lord tell the church in Revelation? Remember, therefore, from whence thou hast fallen. Repent. So the Jews remembered. The Jews repented. And the Lord led them out of captivity, so much so that later in Psalm 30 they said, we were as those that dreamed when the Lord brought back us from captivity. Hey, have you ever had one of those dreams where you wake yourself up laughing or smiling? Okay, it was one of those great dreams. You wake up and you say, yeah, I just don't want that dream to stop. Okay, well, that's what it was like for the Jews on the day that they went back to Israel. Is this real? Am I dreaming? This is fantastic. Well, what led to that was the repentance that was in their hearts. And so let's look here at this last point then. Godly sorrow leads to repentance for us today. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. Now remember, we're talking about the church at Corinth. And they had that problem in their heart. All right? But Paul is telling them, how to get right with God. Okay? So he's telling them in chapter 7 about the letter that he was so forceful to them with. All right, verse 8, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to what? Verse 9. To repentance. For you made sorrow after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance, verse 10, to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. You know what worldly sorrow is? That's that person who's in jail or in prison who thinks they got the bum rap. The justice system let me down. It's rigged. When really, they did break the law. And the evidence was there. And they were convicted. They were sentenced. But their hearts had not changed. Even in the courtroom, the judge and victims are looking for some sign of remorse. But so many people go into prison with no remorse because their heart's not made right. And so that's the sorrow of the world. Man, I am so sorry that I'm locked up behind bars. I can't go out and do anything I want anymore. But I'm not sorry that I did what I did. And so if you are familiar with the term recidivative rate, recidivative rate is the number of people who go back to prison. It's very high in this nation. Because unfortunately, the way the prison system is set up is it's just physical incarceration. It never talks about the bondage of the heart and how someone can be set free. Praise the Lord for gospel preaching chaplains who do go into county jails and go into prisons and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was part of a ministry years ago in Contra Costa County where they had the Good News Jail Ministry, and our church supported that. And there were literally tens of thousands of Bible studies done every year. And, and the testimonies then of our brothers and sisters in Christ, they said, you know, 
I was at rock bottom, and I didn't know what was going on in my life. But then someone said, here's a Bible, will you start reading? That someone invited me to a Bible study, and it was there that I found Jesus, and my life has changed. Praise God. That's exciting. That's wonderful. Even Paul had committed murder, but he sorrowed after a godly sort. He came to repentance, and God used him in a wonderful way. So God doesn't respect us just based upon the fact that, you know, we've kept ourselves out of jail. What really matters is what's in the heart. And so godly sorrow works repentance. Um, maybe this is a good time of year for you to understand that. Uh, guys, when your wife has worked really hard to make all the Christmas cookies and spent hours decorating them immaculately, and you go in the kitchen and devour six of them in 30 seconds, and then you get scolded, and you're like, oh boy, I don't like this uneasiness. You're sorry that you got caught, but you're not sorry that you ate the cookie, right? <laughs> and so godly sorrow says, you know what? I'll respect my wife, and I'll let those cookies sit around for at least 12 hours. <laughs> All right? And so godly sorrow says, okay, I'll make a change here. I'll, I'll, I'll go along with this. You know, it's supposed to last until the time of festivity. All right? But godly sorrow leads to repentance. Let's keep reading. Verse 11, For behold, this very same thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what full punishment in all things that you have proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So you know good, good news about the church at Corinth? They quit rejoicing over the young man that was fornicating with his stepmother. They actually were brokenhearted over it. And they moved from that place of, hey, we're famous, we're in the news, to, wow, we really blew it with God. We need to get this right. Our church needs to make some changes. And so it cleared them, and then they had a hatred for sin. You know, true repentance is this. When we say we're sorry for a sin, we actually then in our heart loathe it and hate it and we don't do it again. That's godly sorrow. And that produces life. That produces repentance, joy, and peace. Spiritual liberty. And so this is where we find the value in this Christmas story and how that we can be freed because we trust in Christ. So repentance leads to restoration. The Jews repented, they returned to the land. Jesus came and he preached a message of repentance. He went throughout Israel saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He commissioned the apostles to go into all the world saying, repent. So today we preach it to you. If you're in sin, repent. If you're right with God, go out and preach that message of repentance to the world today. And set people free through the preaching and the proclamation of good news. And God will use you in a mighty way.